This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw in the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related and hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. That may be the first time I've received an applause for not doing anything. <laughs> I think I've gotten a lot of applause for not doing anything. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> so. that's, it's a new experience for me. Uh, this is Lends Me Your Ears, and I believe this is our, if I'm counting right, it's our 18th I think so. podcast, yes. but our first live before an audience podcast. Thank you, everybody, for sticking around after we watched Hitchcock Truffaut here at Carbon Arc in Halifax. Yeah, it's it's a real pleasure to be here. Of course, we're big fans of Carbon Arc, and uh, you know I've been coming to this theater here in the uh, Nova Scotia Museum of Natural History since I was a youngin, getting piled onto a school bus and brought over for field trips and that sort of thing. So it's kind of kind of refreshing and weirdly nostalgic to be uh, to be in this room and and talking to you and this uh, magical new medium of podcasting. So thanks for sticking around after the film, and uh, it'll be fun to to talk about Hitchcock and a little bit about Truffaut. To, to the best of my limited knowledge and uh, and to, to maybe share our own memories of, of Hitchcock and uh, our favorite films and uh, what we loved about those movies and maybe the, even our, some of our earliest experiences of, of seeing his films. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what we usually do in Lens Me Your Ears, we go and see a film and then we talk about the other films related in a genre or a, a filmmaker. Uh, and, and this is perfect. Uh, Hitchcock Truffaut, you know, it... it, it it also, <laughs> this is part of the reason I love doing a podcast, is it forces me to watch films that I might not otherwise do. I'm very keen on keeping up to date with new films, both Hollywood and uh, mainstream films, but also films, the kind of thing we'd show here at Carbon Arc, which, you know, is international films and documentaries. So, so, but this one, it forced me to sit down and watch Hitchcock again. And, and I know you have, a, uh, Stephen, you have a long history with with uh, Mr. Hitchcock and based on your DVD library alone. <laughs> You've got a lot of his films. He had, I gather, 52 features in his career. And uh, and I think before three weeks ago, I had seen maybe a half a dozen. And that's a little embarrassing to admit as someone who is like, considers himself a fairly serious film lover. Uh, I, I respected his work and I always enjoyed it when I watched it. And I'd seen some of the bigger films, the ones that are more well-known. I'd seen Dial M for Murder and Vertigo and Psycho, uh, North by Northwest, but I hadn't seen a lot of his early films. So this, and then, so so knowing I was going to do this, uh, this podcast forced me to sit down and watch and and coming to grips with that much work is, is it's a lot. It's a lot to, to get your head around. And if you're watching it regularly, I've been having, actually, I'll admit something. I've been having a little nightmares lately. <laughs> and I <laughs> wonder how many yeah. of them have been informed by, by his storytelling style and the way that he, he uses his, his uh, ideas and his, his uh, uh, you know, the way he, he slips in messages within his plots and his storytelling uh, that might have been sort of feeding into my subconscious. I don't know. I'm not going to take that any further, <laughs> but it, it, is, uh, it is something I'm slightly concerned about. And it will be interesting to see if I cease 
watching them as regularly, whether or not the nightmares <laughs> go away too. Um, well, yeah. cer- certainly uh, dreams play a big part in in his films, so it makes sense that they would uh, have an influence on your subconscious and and so on. I mean, he was one of the first mainstream filmmakers, Hollywood or otherwise, to kind of explore that subterranean world of psychology in the subconscious. Uh, not always successfully. Sometimes his attempts to get that across were a bit clunky. You know, we were talking about Spellbound a little bit and how well or not well that uh, film holds up today. And, and that's probably one of the most blatant examples, but it's, it's when he's really getting under your skin and not being as uh, as obvious about it that, that it really takes hold. Um, you know, I, I've been watching this stuff since I was a kid, since I was in the single digits. And, and uh, even a film I've seen so many times, you know, Vertigo, I've probably seen about six or seven times, I swear. And and every time there's some something new to, to take from it. Um, the, you know, they're not all masterpieces. Uh, there's, there's a couple of clunkers buried in there. Uh, but even those have some value. Waltz's, I think the, the great Waltz or Waltz's from Vienna is the one, the one film that he will just completely... Uh, acknowledged was a flop. Okay. Uh, completely, artistically, commercially, dramatically, you know, as an entertainment. Uh, it's never been released on home video in North America. I think there's a really terrible copy on YouTube, uh, you know, for, for, for the curious only. But other than that, you know, I think all the other films have something of value. And, uh, you know, I, I really want to keep going with this. I mean, Hitchcock, I mean, to borrow one of his own metaphors, but he really is the Mount Rushmore of film. You know, or the Statue of Liberty, because he dropped a guy off of that too, um, in uh, in sabotage. So, um, or saboteur rather. But uh, you know, so it's it's funny that we, we've taken this long to get around to discussing him, because it's just it's like the untouchable kind of topic. It's just so big; it encompasses uh, so much of the world of film, and and has so many echoes today in the films that we watch. Well, I think that this documentary did a great job in sort of getting to covering the themes and. Uh, certainly through the eyes of these very well-known directors to, uh, uh, you know, recontextualize his work. And, and some of the surprise to me was that that his reputation need re- needed rehabilitating at all. Like, it's hard to imagine that from today, that people didn't take his work that seriously. Uh, when you think about what he accomplished and how 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 many films he, he made and how he was so beloved. Uh, but I was going to ask you, uh, Stephen, uh, you said that you've been watching him since you were a kid. Do you remember what's your first Hitchcock that really made a big impact on you? Well, here's, here's the weird thing. Uh, my earliest Hitchcock memory is actually not in film form. It's actually in book form. I, I have this very vivid memory of being in a Kohl's bookstore I used to, you know, frequently my, my folks would take me to the mall and I would run away. <laughs> but they always knew I'd either be in the toy store or the bookstore. And I would I would sort of gravitate towards the, the movie book section and read up on, you know, movies that I never had a hope of seeing because, you know, VHS uh, machines weren't in households at that point. And there was a book of basically like a photo novel, sort of, telling the story of Psycho in picture form. And it actually like kind of laid out the whole film in still images. And I, you know, and there's a cover of, the cover image was, uh, you know, uh, Marion Crane in the shower at the hotel. You know, uh, we saw that image there in the film. It's just her screaming, you know, a bad crop shot and a weird purple cover behind her. And, uh, you know, I just flipped through that book over and over, just looking at these images and being sort of fascinated and sort of horrified at the same time. And, 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 uh, you know, it was years before I'd ever get to see the film. You know, I'd probably a VHS copy, uh, you know, 
10 or 15 years later. But but uh, those images were kind of seared in my brain just from from that. I mean, sort of what we saw in the the Truffaut Hitchcock book, which I did eventually get around to uh, taking out of the library at some point, probably in, into the 80s. But uh, and then and then um, you know and then I saw the TV show, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show would show up in reruns, and uh, and so I had this image of him as a personality, uh, as this kind of kind of slightly wacky droll old British gentleman who is, you know, with this very, very dark sense of humor, making jokes about murder and death and killing people. And, and, uh, that probably informed my own personal sense of humor between that and the Adams family and, and, uh, and a lot of other things. Um, you know, but, but he was even, even after he was kind of past his prime or stopped making films, you know, I, he, I mean, I'd see, he, there was a line of adventure books with his, and ghost stories with his face on it, and there was a board game, an Alfred Hitchcock board game, and 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 all this stuff. So it, you know, you're constantly aware of his presence before I even really knew what he was really all about and what the what mastery went into the films. You know, I just saw I saw I saw him as a personality, and eventually, you know, I got into the films and 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 saw and saw how they were marketed through those trailers where he appears as himself, introducing the film, and and that kind of wry side to the, these dark dark movies. And I just was endlessly fascinated by it. Well, he certainly was the first celebrity director, I think. I mean, you think about the kind of profile that someone like Quentin Tarantino has today. Uh, but one of the things that made revisiting a lot of his work, I guess now I've probably seen 15 to 20 of his feature films, uh, and realizing this, the time, I mean, he, he was born with the new century, so he started making films in his 20s in Europe and uh, was heavily influenced by German Expressionism, and then he went and worked in the UK through the 30s, they went to Hollywood in the 40s, and he really hit his stride in the 50s. So by the time that he's making the movies that most people know him for, the movies like Vertigo and Psycho, he was a pushing 60, and he had been directing for 30 plus years. And I'm trying to think about, and he, I mean, and he's really hitting his stride. He's taking risks with Psycho, I mean, they said in this documentary that he he changed cinema. He sort of changed the world with that film. And I'm trying to think of a filmmaker today who has has had that kind of of effect at that point in his career, like having already directed for 30 years, being that. I, I mean, you know, you think about Kubrick. I guess he was he directed for that long, but his best stuff you would think was was earlier, or, or uh, you know, Woody Allen is 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 certainly that prolific, but I don't think anyone these days are thinking that he's making his best stuff. Uh, you know, and that's no <laughs> offense. I'm a big Woody Allen fan. I think he still does great work, but but you know, but and but you know, only one I can I was I was scouring my mind of the filmmakers. Terrence Malick is still taking risks, but he had huge gaps where he didn't do anything. Oh yeah, for, you know, you know with decades, his yeah um, without working, and now he's working a lot. Uh, but yeah, it is it is astonishing that that a guy at that point was like so confident and had, had amassed so much experience making films that he was just like, I'm just going to push forward and and create work that I haven't done before. And, and really, as an artist, I have a huge respect for someone who has that that kind of uh, uh, you know in in film has that kind of imagination and uh, and hunger to keep pushing the bounds of his his art his work. Yeah, it's you know, like you say, he got in on the ground floor of movie making when when everything was fresh and new, and you know, just learned everything. He was doing the titles, he was doing scenarios, he was doing art direction before he actually got to um, 
you know, got to tell the actors what to do and actually like edit the film in, in his mind and so on. And, and, and in fact, uh, an early film that he worked on is, uh, I can't remember if he was worked on the scenario. He didn't direct it, but the, they found half of a film, early film of his in New Zealand recently. And it's, it's quite fascinating to see how he kind of works some of his own obsessions and things into it. And the, the name of it escapes me at the moment, but it has recently been released on an archival collection of, of lost films from, uh, from down under. Um, and, you know, every film is a step forward. It's, it's just remarkable. And the one thing I, I sort of in the documentary, uh, they talk about how the British, the original British man who knew too much is the first kind of completely Hitchcock film, which I don't quite agree with. Uh, I mean, and maybe this is a good place to start with the lodger his his kind of big silent film breakthrough. It's his last silent film. He'd made a handful before that. And, um, uh, it just, uh, just everything about it works. It's 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 an amazing film if you get a chance to see it. It's it's um, there's been terrible public domain copies. Finally, they they properly restored and remastered it. And when you see a good copy of it, it's it's amazing. Just uh, so much of what goes into his later films is all there. You know, the obsession with blonde hair, with killers, with uh, you know different viewpoints like filming like they showed in the documentary where they filmed the guy from underneath using a glass floor, you know, as he's pacing the floor, um, the wrong, the whole idea of the wrong man being accused of, of a crime that he's not responsible for, which shows up again and again and again in these films. Like it's, 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 uh, you know, it's a perfect film. It's, it's, it's very entertaining. It, 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 it really gets you in the palm of your hand and it's silent. It doesn't even get to use audio the way he would in later films. And even yeah. without that tool, he, he still makes one of the best uh, silent thrillers of all time. Oh. <laughs> Is it that time? Is it two time? <laughs> That's a lovely ring. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. This is one I discovered because I was, you know, researching for, for our chat here. And I absolutely loved it. And, and, and the, the version I've seen, I guess a restored version, has a new score by someone named Nitin Sawney, who I believe is a British composer. And I absolutely love the score. I'm actually hunting for it now. And it's not easily found in North America. But, uh, but yeah, everything you say about the film, I totally agree with. I, I really love the look of it. I love, I love that these, these obsessions of him as a filmmaker were already kind of fled, fully fledged at that point. Uh, and that, that subtle inference of, of fetishism in, in objects and in the way people look. And, and I, I think one of the things that I really impressed with, uh, with Hitchcock and, and uh, in watching a lot of his work, and, I, I, and it's going to come up when we get to Frenzy, is how... <laughs> how uh, you know the censors and the the mores the mores of the time kept him from uh, from maybe saying everything that he he wanted to say uh, and uh, and that's I think a good thing because he had to work his way around it you know so so I think that that sort of formed his his style and of course there are some famous examples of where he had to change the ending of his films like Suspicion because the studio didn't want Cary Grant's reputation to be sullied by the <laughs> fact that he might be the killer yes. uh, and uh, and that's a great film except for that ending which seems strangely wrong headed now and now that I know why it's because because it had to be changed at the very end uh, and I apparently the this film too The Lodger 
uh, Ivor Novello, who plays the, he's the lead. He's he's an actor and actually a composer in his real life. That guy, uh, you know, the he he is set up to be the the killer, but he is really not, um, as you mentioned. And uh, I guess I was not. This is it's <laughs> well, funny. I didn't spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's here's the here's the problem. Uh, talking about movies that are eighty years old, uh, yeah, that there true. might be some spoilers here. Uh, <laughs> but but I really feel like I'm in in fair. This is fair territory at this point. Um, yeah, I just, I, the killer is actually captured off screen, which was something I was like, really? It's not one of these <laughs> cast members is going to be the killer? Uh, you know, as a, as a, as a twist, but it, it, that's an interesting thing that happens in that film. Yeah, he's not that interested in doing like the Agatha Christie style you know, drawing room right. murder. Like, it's so funny because you know, he's the master of suspense and the, the, the maestro of murder, yet he doesn't want to do anything in a conventional way. And, um, you know, Dial in for murder might be the closest he gets to making that kind of movie because right. it's based on a successful play and uh, it's it's not Agatha Christie but it's you know it's kind of got those similar machinations but he he does things within that film that are pretty pretty remarkable mm-hmm. it's not one of my favorites but uh, it's certainly one I'll watch again and again sure. down the road anyway so yeah uh, well we were going to talk about uh, as we go through his various ages or yeah. decades uh, we were going to mention that you know he came into his own very much in the 30s. And he made a bunch of these films that were very well regarded. And, uh, you know, I discovered that I'm, although I admire their construction, I'm not as much of a fan of his comedic mm. films, uh, like The Lady Vanages, or even 39 Steps, which is kind of an adventure movie and a murder mystery and a wrong man movie. <laughs> and a spy movie. And a spy yeah. movie. But but I think I think it feels to me, and this is a personal thing, and, it, you know, other people may feel feel differently, but that that the movies that have a really dark tone have aged better somehow. Uh, and I know that you're you're a fan, Stephen, of of uh, Thirty Nine Steps. So so uh, maybe I don't know if you want to talk about that one from the '30s. The the film that I really liked uh, was Sabotage, which is a, a story about uh, terrorists in London, which feels very. I mean, it's it's been accused of being like propaganda, basically, because the terrorists, although their politics are a little uncertain, their uh, their intent is very clear, and they all have vaguely Germanic accents. Uh, Oscar Homolka, the clip we saw from the documentary, that amazing scene where where this American woman who has married this man sort of for security and for her, her brother who has been killed as a result of the man's uh, terrorist activities, and he tries to basically brush it off, saying it was it was nothing I could do. And and there's that moment where she's not sure what she's going to do, and you don't know what she's capable of. And she's got the, looking at the knife on the table as he approaches her. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, it's so, the suspense is crazy. It's really well done. But uh, yeah, that that's one I definitely would recommend. Well, yeah, I I really like Sabotage. It's one of those films that I you know I first time I saw it, I was a little confused. And I realized that the scene where she's watching the Disney cartoon was excised from a lot of prints because of copyright. You know, they, uh-huh, they, sure. uh, you know, or people were peddling copies and they didn't want to get stomped on by Disney lawyers. So that, that's kind of an important scene and it's completely missing from, from a lot of prints of that film. So, um, but, uh, you know, Sylvia Sidney is terrific in it. I, I really like her in her 1930s roles. And then I like her in Beetlejuice. Many many years later, she's right? A wonderful actress. Holy cow! I never made the connection. Wow! Whoa, Stephen, you just blew my Uh-oh. mind. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Okay. So should I hit pause? No, for no, a please, or... please continue. Um, <laughs> uh, well, that, that that film definitely reflects the temper of the times. The, uh, there was this, uh, you know, in the you know gap between the wars. Basically, this is fear of anarchists, anarchists, and and. Uh, 
you know, throwing Molotov cocktails and, and Bolsheviks and all this kind of, you know, the, and, and there was this kind of xenophobia that was uh, in the, I mean, even seen in Warner Brothers cartoons, there's like a, a Warner Brothers cartoon where, you know, that where a guy, like a guy that looks like Rasputin throws a bomb at a character that looks like Gandhi. I mean, it's just nuts how, how much this, uh, this kind of topic uh, infiltrated the public consciousness and, and Hitchcock just, uh, he really kind of twists the knife on that one. Yeah, for sure. And he, I mean, you see it in th- something like Foreign Correspondent, yeah. uh, another wartime, you know. Yeah, pretty- unabashedly propaganda. Like yeah, there's no, totally. he's not even pretending that it's not. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, it's designed to, to get Americans, if not gung-ho to go to war against Germany, to at least pay attention to what's going on right. in Europe and be ready for when, you know, the other shoe drops. Yeah. <laughs> What other films did you want to mention in, uh, that are that maybe people don't know or haven't seen? Um, well, I'm an unabashed Anglophile, so I really like that early uh, pre-Hollywood period. Um, even even some of the uh, even some of the silent films uh, that aren't necessarily you know thrillers or suspense or whatever. There's one called Champagne, which is kind of a socialite comedy, but it's uh, it's very frothy, very energetic. There's all and we saw a clip of it, uh, I think, where the guy holds up the glass. Oh, and right. you can see the reflection of, of this party that's happening through the through the champagne glass. It's it's uh, it, it's a fun kind of you know frothy frolic, which is not the sort of thing you think of with Hitchcock, but it's it's full of all kinds of visual invention. And and I think maybe because the the topic wasn't so serious, he felt he could really try a bunch of new things in the service of the story, of course. But uh, you know, try some new camera tricks and double exposure stuff he was doing in Blackmail as well, his first uh, sound film, which also exists as a silent. Um, and and uh, you know you you feel a sense of humor developing as well uh, in in films like Lady Vanishes has so much humor. You got those two guys who are always arguing about cricket matches and right. that kind of thing. Um, and uh, you see a little bit less of that once once he uh, gets to North America. But the you know, that that quirky Britishness that that uh, fills those uh, those early movies, I, I I get a big kick out of. Fair um, enough. Uh, and I do love the Thirty Nine Steps. It just has this. The, the pace of it is just quite remarkable. Once once it gets going, I love the fact that the main guy is Canadian, you know, who who gets involved in this spy plot, and um, you know the fact that it goes from London to Scotland, and 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 just the, the speed of travel and the whole thing of being handcuffed to to this woman who doesn't want to be with him. Uh, it, it's and again that sort of thing, you know, it comes back around in uh, in uh, sabotage and. Uh, it comes back in, or saboteur rather. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that all night with those two films. <laughs> uh, North by Northwest. You know these these echoes keep coming back, but uh, you know just just the pacing of it, the, the the vitality and the energy of those films. Young and Innocent is another good one from the British period, uh, and that's it, it's very similar to uh, Thirty Nine Steps in that there's a man on the run, and uh, he's this woman is accompanying him, accompanying him whether whether she likes it or not. Kind of thing as he tries to clear his name. Uh, you know, it's amazing how he keeps returning to the same themes over and over and over again. The same way uh, Michael Bay keeps returning to giant fighting robots. But, <laughs> but you know, every time it's something new, it's, it's, it's filmed in a different way. You know, he does The Wrong Man is almost like a docudrama, you know, filmed in this very kind of realistic slash noir style, which is very different for, for Hitchcock at that time. And, and it stands out, but it, it's still the same kind of theme. Um, but from a completely different viewpoint, completely different perspective, um, and with hardly any humor at all. Right. So uh, I've kind of lost my train of thought <laughs> as I want to do on the show. But but uh, you know, it's 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 interesting how he kind of had that free spirit 
in those early films. And then the control starts, you know, you see him tightening up yeah. once he gets to, yeah. to Hollywood and, and uh, really taking the reins. You know, yeah, and I, I, can, I can understand your, your appreciation for those early films, but I, I think I felt more emotionally engaged by some of those heavier, darker sure. films. And, and I got to say that of all the, you know, uh, over a dozen films I watched of his in the past uh, uh, couple of weeks, Shadow of the Doubt was... Without a shadow of a doubt, yes, uh, yes, yeah, I had to go there. Uh, was really, really the most surprising in just how contemporary it felt, uh, and it, it's basically a, a chilling story about a happy family there in Santa Rosa, California, where the sort of beloved brother slash uncle played by Joseph Cotton, comes home and turns out that he might be a killer. Now his niece, who's practically telepathic, and this is something else that I've seen in a lot of Hitchcock films, the women are always incredibly intuitive. They always figure out what's going on. Um, She starts to consider that he may have some secrets. Now her name is Charlie, and she's played by Teresa Wright, who's actually Charlotte, and but she's named after her uncle. So it's Charlie and Charlie. So there's this duality that's going on, and that's something else that you start seeing in in his films. Um, now, now she's thrilled when he shows up, but slowly and terrifyingly, she begins to understand that her hunk, uncle has a twisted view of the world and may be capable of anything. And her anxiety is compounded when two detectives show up trying to get a photo of him. Now, now the the overtones of sexual abuse are powerful, and there's a scene when Uncle Charlie holds young Charlie's face right in front of a potential suitor, and it just made my my skin crawl. Uh, You know, and I I appreciated that even in this dark story, there is some great, uh, there's a little bit of very effective comedy relief, and that's when uh, young Charlie's father, played by Henry, Henry Travers, who's best known as Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, uh, and neighbor uh, Hume Cronin uh, talk about true crime. They just have <laughs> these little these little side stories where they're talking about how to murder each other, and uh, and I just I could just imagine Hitchcock actually having those kinds of conversations with himself or with Alma, his wife, you know, in order to sort of generate the ideas that would wind up, uh, you know, f- informing his scripts. Oh, Shadow of a Doubt is a film that just uh, gets better with age for sure. And it's, I, I think it's one that took a while to come into its own in terms of the whole pantheon of, of Hitchcock films. It's, uh, it's a film I was kind of late in coming to and, uh, you know, it's just, again, that's one of those ones I've seen it about four times now. And, you know, just things like just there, there's like the, that quick shot of Joseph Cotton standing on the porch staring at, at his niece. And it's it's like a split second. I, you know, it's it's probably not more than 24 or 30 frames. And, and you know, if, if you could blink and miss it. But it's just it's just like a knife to, the, to you know, just the, the, the power coming off. I mean, it, it, it says a lot about Cotton's power as an actor. But, uh, you know, you can just feel the heat coming from those uh, that knife stare mm-hmm. of his in, in that very brief shot. Um, you know, and there's lots of stuff like that in that film. Uh, I love the fact that uh, Hitchcock's collaborator on that uh, was uh, Thornton Wilder. Right. Who, you know, was writing, kind of doing the very dark kind of festering underside of small town America. But he was best known for the play Our Town, which was kind of celebrating small town America and community and... And uh, you know how the 
the shortness of life and how we come and go and things don't change and all that sort of thing. And then he turns around and completely flips that on its head in this movie. So yeah. it's kind of interesting how the, those are, there's this w weird duality there as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Hitchcock obviously had a, a great collaborator there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot to talk about in the 40s uh, and, you know, Notorious and Rope and all these films as he transitioned into the 50s. Um, now, I know a lot of people probably know Strangers on a Train and I, I, I watched it again just the other night, and I was reminded how great it is. Um, so, I, but I don't want to linger on it too long because just because I know it's one of his more well-known films. But you and I watched, I confess, which I had never seen before, right. and uh, and I, I sort of knew about it a little bit, mostly because it's famously shot in Quebec City, and it looks. And at that point, and correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, but uh, the idea of shooting on location was becoming more and more. Hollywood was doing it more and more often. Uh, and I mean, location brought so much to it because at, up to that point, a lot of the movies had, you know, the back projection and the in-studio stuff really was the way it was done. But but seeing, seeing Quebec City in the 50s is amazing. It's amazing just spending time in that film. Uh, not to mention Monty Cliff, who is... Uh, just, uh, just astonishingly like magnetic for those eyes, you know that face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he's he's very well cast, and and they famously did not get along. Hitchcock and Clift. He, Hitchcock didn't really get along with any of the method actors. If you see, I don't know if we'll talk about Torn Curtain. It's it's not a great film, but and he and Paul Newman did not see eye to eye at all. And if you know, Paul Newman can be you know kind of not great in films if he's not. You know, personally interested in the material, or if he's not having good time, I've seen a few films where he was not. You could tell his uh, level of investment in the material was pretty low, and Torn Curtain, and sadly, is one of those. But uh, it still has its moments for sure. But uh, I confess, it is a remarkable film. It's generally regarded as second tier Hitchcock. For I'm not even sure why. Maybe because it's not as uh, glamorous or uh, glossy as some of the later films, things like uh, Rear Window or or, or Vertigo. But um, you know the, the 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 setting, the feeling of place is really strong in a way that it isn't in other films because Hitchcock did not like shooting on location. It was not his favorite thing to do. And if you see his use of back projection, it gets kind of embarrassing <laughs> in in later years. You know, especially if you look at a film like Marnie, where there's so many matte paintings and 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 so much back projection, it just gets to be a little bit ridiculous. Well, the, the Technicolor sort of you know, put paid to a lot of that That's because true. you just, you couldn't get away with it the way you could in black and white, I suppose. Yeah, it's a fine line between Marnie pretending to ride a horse and Elvis on a surfboard. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's too bad Hitchcock never directed an Elvis movie. That would have been, that would have been <laughs> yeah. great. Um, but uh, yeah, I confess is, is remarkable on every level. Carl Malden is great as a police officer trying to get to the truth of it. And, uh, and of course, uh, it's the strongest uh, representation of uh, Hitchcock's Catholic upbringing. Uh, you know, there are elements of it scattered throughout uh, throughout his filmography, but that's the film where it's just, you know, stamped right on the screen. And that might be the problem some people have with the film, that it is so blatant. There's so much religious imagery that, uh, you know, they're hitting you over the head a little bit with it. But it, but it's, you know, and if you're not a Catholic, maybe the whole idea of the, the, the confessional and the sacredness of, 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 of those... Uh, of those uh, confessions and those sins uh, doesn't re really, maybe doesn't hit home the same way it, it would. But uh, Clift is great in it. I, I actually got into an online debate about this film this week, uh, completely unrelated to this, but you know, people were talking about on a film Facebook group about whether or not it was a good film or not. And some people hated it. Huh. Um, 
I said, well, I'm not a huge Montgomery Cliff film, but I really like him in this. And then somebody who was a huge Montgomery Cliff didn't like him in this. And I liked it because he wasn't as over the top as he can be in uh-huh. some films uh, where he's just, the, the, you know, where his tortured soul shtick gets taken to the next level. And some people wanted to see more of the tortured soul shtick in, right. in the film. And, uh, you know, I, I think he, he's it's one of his more balanced performances. So Yeah, you know. I, I, I'm not a, a particular fan, but I just thought he was very good in this. And I know I never got the sense that he was going to divert from his his vows and his he was now, he's not going to give up the murderer mm. because of what he his faith and uh, and I, I sort of appreciated that his character was very straight arrow uh, but I did also appreciate that so many of of Hitchcock's leading characters as men sort of they they go between the guilt and innocence and what is guilt and what is innocence and and I, I think that's what I really appreciate in a lot of his films is that he has sympathy for. Uh, his villains, like these dark characters are so tortured, but he often gives them a chance to sort of explain themselves. Uh, you know, I think about the end of Foreign Correspondent, which we mentioned earlier, how the 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 father who has been running a, a peace organization, who but in fact is a is a double agent, a spy, <laughs> right. is on this plane that's going to crash. And so he has this one opportunity to come clean to his daughter, who he loves, and that's the, his real reason for doing everything, and he and he justifies himself, and you know you're kind of like, huh, wow, you're, yeah, I could see that perspective. Okay, you might have killed a bunch of people working for the Nazis, but you know, uh, you know, you you actually you make a good case, uh, you know, and I I really appreciate that in in that that sympathy for the devil, I guess that that Hitchcock had, and 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 you know, and I, I also. Coming in here, I was thinking about why it was that the French New Wave and Truffaut particularly really held up Hitchcock as this great filmmaker when he was underappreciated in so many other ways. And uh, it occurs to me, and the answer is pretty pretty simple. You know, the Cahiers de Cinema invented the idea of the auteur, right. and Hitchcock is like the number one auteur. His the singularity of his themes and this repetition of the stuff that he was interested in over anybody else is is really i mean you can see it throughout his films and and of course those those french filmmakers must have really uh, identified with that yeah I, I have mixed feelings about the auteur theory because of course you know having been on enough film sets it takes a lot of it's a definitely a lot of collaboration yeah. To, it's, yeah you know it's definitely collaborative but you know he picked Writers that uh, either shared his viewpoint or could help him get his uh, thoughts across, and his wife Alma, you know, picked the scripts. So, you know, she obviously had a had a big part in that. That uh, you know wasn't really recognized for years after. There's a, I actually have a copy of an old Paris Match that has an article on you know at home with the Hitchcocks, and it shows it shows Alma in the kitchen like making a dinner, and but in the fridge behind her. There's a wax head of Hitchcock from the dummy from uh, the Frenzy trailer where he's shown floating in the river. And they, they actually, just as a joke, they put this fake head of him in the refrigerator. She's like taking out a souffle or something like that. And, it, it, you, know, you know, they definitely had, uh, you know, a similar uh, mindset. And, uh, you know, he relied on her to kind of pick the stories and, and kind of find the properties that uh, would suit his taste and his, his style. But, um, you know, the, definitely... You know, putting a the, putting a stamp on a film as as a Hitchcock film, or the way that John Ford would on his films, and 
uh, with recurring characters, recurring themes. It, it definitely uh, marked a new way to look at movies in terms of, uh, like you say, like the author theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's 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 a mixed bag for me, but uh, certainly a John Ford film looks like a John yeah, Ford sure. film, and a Hitchcock film certainly looks like a Hitchcock film. And and they wanted to do it in their own way without. <laughs> But on you know on lower budgets and right. with a lot uh, a lot more freedom in terms of what they could portray. Uh, now you said you had seen Vertigo six times at least. Yes. Now I just wondered if you wanted to say anything about why why <laughs> so many times that particular film. Uh, it's just something I kept coming back to, and also it kept getting reissued. Um, I saw it for the first time, and it, it, they mentioned it in the film, but the Lost Hitchcocks. There were, I believe, five of his films that. At some point in the late 60s, I think, or mid-60s, he, uh, he he had gotten the rights back to certain films that he had produced, um, I guess mostly for Paramount. Um, but they were he was the producer, and he it was done under his own aegis, and uh, he decided to withhold those films from circulation for whatever reason. Vertigo, Rope, Man Who Knew Too Much, Trouble with Harry, and Rear Window. And you could not see them. They were not shown on television. Uh, as they say in the film, a, lot, a few people were lucky enough to... to find 16 millimeter prints it was pre-home video so uh you know unless you had one of those uh one of those ratty looking you know school projection prints uh you weren't going to see those films anytime soon and then at some point uh in the mid 80s they decided to to uh universal had gotten the rights to uh to those films and they it was the early days of home video so they wanted to relaunch these to the home market and they did it with a theatrical campaign where they released one per week and uh, they sh- they all showed at the Highland Theater here in Halifax, and my I you know being the burgeoning teenage film nut that I was, I begged my parents to take me <laughs> to the Highland Theater because we lived in Dartmouth, and the bus system was a mystery to me at that point. So uh, still is in some ways, but uh, you know, so they they took me to see three out of the five, and one of them was Vertigo, and of course, you know, at this point I'm, you know, I. Oof, either like grade nine or grade 10 or something like that. And I'm like, that's, this is going way over my head. Like the theme, themes of sexual obsession and and uh, the fetishism and all that kind of stuff. You know, I wasn't picking up on any of it, but I just was fascinated by this, this crisp controlled vision of his. And um, that, I think that was probably my first time seeing his movies on a big screen too. Um, Rear Window made a big impression uh, at that screen. I, I distinctly remember like that there's a, a scene early on where just Grace Kelly lo- looms into focus in close up, and it's one of the most beautiful shots in film history. And just like, ugh. <laughs> you know, when you see it on a big screen, especially, you know, a theater like the Highland, it's it just, uh, you know, it's has such a bigger impact. Um, when you uh, then when you see it on television, uh, and then uh, Vertigo uh, got restored uh, at some point in the late '90s because the, the, you know the, the, uh, Richard Harris, no Richard Harris, but um, the the great film restorer who's he restored uh, Lawrence of Arabia, My Fair Lady, he brought a, a number of great films back from the brink. You know when their negatives were gone and the remaining prints were turning pink from bad Eastman color, and Vertigo was one of the the top ones on his list. And and uh, so they restored it. They put a new digital soundtrack on it for better or for worse because they used new sound effects that sounded terrible. Uh, and they put it back in theaters. Just Vertigo, not those other five films, but Vertigo was the masterpiece that had to be saved. And so I saw it again a couple of times actually on that release. I, I saw it in Montreal, and they eventually it showed up in Halifax. I saw it again. Um, and, you know, a few things had changed in my life by that point. I'd suffered a, a personal loss of a dear friend of mine. 
And so all of a sudden it came and snapped into focus. I understood what Jimmy Stewart was going through in this movie. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, it, it really got to the heart of me. But when, and we talked about this uh, earlier in the week, uh, when you watch it on television, it seems so slow. <laughs> it, it's weird. It, it, uh, I love it on the big screen. It's, it, I get sucked into the world, into that dreamlike world uh, that we saw some, some beautiful looking clips of here. But uh, on television, it's, it's one of those films that does not, you know, on a small screen, it, it's, uh, it really demands your attention. And it's like, and so I'm glad that I had that cinematic experience because it feels like two different films yeah. depending on how you watch it. But so, you know, submerged into the dark, you just walk right into it. But yeah. uh, at no. home, it, I felt distanced from it. I agree. I agree. And I, I'd watched it years ago and I actually watched it again last night for the first time mm -hmm. in a long time. And, uh, and yeah, the first act, especially when he's driving around San Francisco following her and I'm just thinking, what, where is this going? <laughs> like I, I was used to having watched a lot of Hitchcock lately. I was used to a certain kind of the machinations, the plot predominating and yes. leading us places, but it felt very much like he was just standing back and just letting things kind of happen yeah. and letting the imagery tell the story. And, and I'm glad they spent so much time in the documentary talking about, it, especially uh, especially Scorsese saying he doesn't really believe it. And I, I had that same feeling. I was like, I don't quite buy this, uh, the, the way the plot works, but I am in awe of the imagery. And I, I, I love those shots of people dwarfed by huge monuments, whether mm. it's the buildings or the hills or the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, it's it's an extraordinarily beautiful film and the, the lush color behind like the wallpaper in the bar with the red wallpaper in oh, yeah, the bar. Yeah, that's an like that's set. incredible stuff and, and that's the stuff that seeps in and you spend two hours with that. And today it's all like, it's been coming yeah. back to me. Like yeah, when, when like you see like the a theater, bad it all meal. comes at you. But, <laughs> it just comes yeah. up in my in my head and in my body. Yeah. So yeah. so I, I can't wait to see it. I'm sure I'll get an opportunity to see it on the big screen again. Yeah. On, on on a small screen, you're just thinking about the story. Line. And if you think about the storyline, why the hell would Kim Novak go along with this goofy plot? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, I need you to help me murder my wife. Oh, sure. Like, it's, yeah. like it, you know, you, you think about that too much. The hole in and, the middle of the film, as they yeah, exa call it. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah. why is this happening? Why is she doing this? And, uh, uh, you know, you don't want to be, that's not what you're supposed to be thinking. No. But, um, yeah, you're thinking you know, about, that's where you should be thinking goes. about whether or not, uh, Jimmy Stewart's eyes were blue. Uh, you know, like they seem really blue. They're incredibly blue, um, but maybe not. Anyway, yeah, and I I also, yeah, I, I really, I wound up loving it, even though, uh, again, even though it, it took me a while to get up to speed with it. Um, so, yeah, so in after the the meeting that takes place in the documentary, uh, they, they mentioned that Hitchcock only made three more films, mm -hmm. and I made a point of, watching Frenzy, which was the first film he made after I was born. And I think I am uh, guilty of this, as, as many people are, is that you, you tend to be, and I think a lot of people do this, is you tend to be more interested in films made in your lifetime. Uh, so this was an interesting, okay, I'm going to watch Hitchcock movie that was made in 1972. And, uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. I loved seeing London again, location. He went back to London. He shot in around Covent Garden, which at the time was a was like a fruit market, and the Covent Garden that I know is not a fruit market. No, like, you not know, anymore. It's quite changed. Uh, but I did feel a little disappointment that in the '70s he could get away with showing things explicitly that he only had to suggest in his earlier films, like the rape scene, which is as sleazy and unpleasant as any uh, that I've seen. 
but of you know, there's a long lingering shot of nudity, and you're just sort of like, well, I didn't feel like that was necessarily adding anything. I, I felt like the suggestion of it in past films made it somehow more powerful. Uh, but that said, he has all the tricks up his sleeve that I think he has ever had, and he uses in the film in, in lovely ways. There's a there's a deathly silent close-up of Anna Massey just as she's being observed by the killer, which I absolutely love, mm. and he's standing right behind her. And there's more staircases, which Hitchcock <laughs> has so many staircases in his it's in his films. And this much one, every film, yeah, and this one when features. when the killer leads her up to his apartment, the camera. The door closes and the camera just retreats down the stairs and out into the street so you don't get to see what happens, so you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then there's this bizarrely funny struggle with a corpse in the back of a potato truck. <laughs> this is the strangest thing. Uh, and again, you know, the 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 neckties and the the pin that the murderer loses and it has to go and retrieve and these little mo- these little sort of bits of of, uh, of props that become so important. Uh, you know, and I, I think... I think, I, I, like I said, I did enjoy it, but I think what I was feeling a little bit was that by the 70s, filmmakers like, like Polanski had sort of furthered the thriller genre and, and made it and gone in new places that, that they built on his work. And he, although he was, I mean, I think he was still relevant and interesting film frenzy, uh, it yeah, it almost felt a little bit a little bit out of date. He also wasn't using a Bernard, a Bernard Herrmann um, uh, the score. No, he, he they they parted ways. They parted on, ways. During and I think, curtain, and I think that score had a lot uh, a lot going for it. So uh, so yeah, and, and and I felt like he he went back to an earlier kind of sound in the score that he had not uh, uh, he hadn't used in a while. So anyway, all that to say, yeah. I was really glad to see it. Well, it's one but, of the best uh, non Bernard Herman scores. It, weirdly enough, he started out uh, getting Henry Mancini to score it. Oh, okay. And I don't know how far along they got. There is a Henry Mancini theme for Frenzy. Uh-huh. And uh, I think on uh, the most recent reissue of it, they show what the credit sequence would have looked like with Henry's theme instead of, uh, I can't remember, he's a, the British composer that he used. His okay. name escapes me right now. But but um, I, I really like Frenzy. Although it's funny, I I think the first time I saw it would have been on like the great money movie you know, that we used to get out of Bangor, you know, one ringy dingy. You know, they'd flash a word on the screen and you'd have to know what it was when they called you up um, kind of thing. Or or maybe it was like the midday matinee that CTV used to have. But um, so I saw a TV version of it. So um, so the nudity would have been cut out of it. Right, sure. Uh, which may have made it a more effective film in the edited for TV movie, which is kind of, that is kind kind of, of weird to think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that... Uh, Gratuitous use of the word "bitch," for example, mm-hmm. you know, is, is is probably taken out, and I think it's, so. It almost makes it more old-fashioned. So it seems like a, you know that version would feel like a more old-fashioned Hitchcock film. And then right. I think seeing it with those uh, sort of more permissive elements uh, actually in there is a bit is a bit weird and a bit shocking, and it kind of makes you wonder, you know, if he kept going, where where he would have gone, right? Uh, because uh, fa- family plot, you know, he kind of pulls back from that sort of thing with the, with his final film. It's more of almost a farce, okay. I guess, in some ways. But um, you know, still with suspense elements and so on, and a wacky cast like Bruce Dern and Karen Black. <laughs> okay. But, but I really like I like Frenzy. I like that that image of of, of London at that time. Sure. When, you know, the swinging sixties are definitely over. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't reek of swinging sixties aside from some of the wide lapels and right that kind of thing. Like it, he's it's it's not overly dated um you know and, and i find like he doesn't 
indulge in the fads of the time in his movies too much, which, you know, he could have. He could have done that in Frenzy, and he right. didn't. And uh, I think that's why it still works for me. And uh, right. you know, I love, I love the dry humor of the the police, the the policeman, the Scotland Yard uh, detective. Right. Uh, I I thought was, uh, you know, I, I, I actually just watched it last week, and I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed the role of, of the detective. Who yeah, and and his and his wife, across. who fancies herself a gourmet cook, and is <laughs> constantly the the film is Making, fascinated with with the kind of food yeah. that he is forced to eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, it is. I guess that's where the the light, the comedic relief comes from. Yeah, well, that's it's definitely the um, the uh, you know the, the frenzy sees those uh, obsessions coming to the fore in, in a new, more explicit way. Sure. And and uh, you mentioned staircases, and of course, food. There's always some remarkable bit of food imagery in his films, whether it's the sandwiches in Psycho or or uh, someone stubbing out an a cigarette in an egg right. and do a fried sure. egg and uh, to catch a thief. Uh, there's so many examples of that. And, but here he is with you know, these disgusting dishes being trotted <laughs> out for the detective in, in more than one scene. And, you know, he was clearly just trying to get it all out there on the screen in that movie. Yeah. I, I kind of like the over the topness of frenzy, I guess, but um, you know, I, I can see how it'd be a lesser work, but it certainly compares a lot better to the previous three films. Right, like Topaz, Torn Curtain, and Marnie. It's, it certainly feels like a return to form, and I think Truffaut saw it and described it as a young man's film. He liked like the energy and the humor and the the sort of up to dateness of it. I guess, for lack of a better term. So uh, we're coming to an end of his yes. his work, and I'm just wondering if have we missed anything you wanted to give a shout out to for for anyone who is thinking about going back to watch some more. Uh, Hitchcock, have we, have we, we've done a pretty good job of covering them. Yeah, I, I certainly recommend tracking down the films that aren't as popular. Uh, the, the things, things like, um, like The Trouble with Harry, for example. Um, you know, maybe even Marnie. Marnie is a film that a lot of people just flat out say they hate or is a terrible film, and it's not. It's, it's Tippi Hedren is, is actually pretty good. She gets kind of a, a rough uh, deal, I think, uh, in, in terms of uh, Hitchcock's filmography in the the actors that he worked with. But uh, when I finally got around to watching Marnie, I, I was really intrigued by the film's portrayal of sexual politics and and uh, how he sort of subliminates a, a suspense plot into the film, but that's not really what it's about at all. And and Sean Connery's pretty good. He plays a real jerk. As, as uh, you know, later interviews would reveal him to kind of be in private life. So it's kind of interesting to see him play an even bigger jerk than the, the early James Bond was, um, you know, more of a pig in a way. And uh, there's, there's a lot I like about that film. So uh, Topaz, Topaz will be a disappointment no matter what, I think. Uh, <laughs> although I'm I'm keen to go back and watch it again to see if there's anything in that I like. I think seeing a good copy of it might help. Um, so yeah, see, see the lesser known films, uh, maybe some of the early British films like Young and Innocent or Rich and Strange, track those down and then maybe fill in some of the gaps. <laughs> Okay, uh, I think, does anyone want to share their experience of Hitchcock or have any questions? Uh, feel free to to uh, put your hand up. I'm not sure what the best uh, etiquette is for this. Yeah. Well, how about people just yell out the name of a favorite Hitchcock film? Like, just what's, I'm just going to go around the room. If everyone wants to shout out a favorite Hitchcock film, we'll start at the back. Anybody have any favorites? <laughs> Rope is fun. I mean, it's a gimmick film, you know, trying to make it look like the whole film is one shot. 
uh, you know, so it kind of looks like a play, but it's on a big set, so it's not really like a play. And uh, yeah, Birdman, come on, forget about it. You're way <laughs> exactly. Out of date. Yeah, Hitchcock was way ahead of the game. You know, <laughs> especially with the, that huge, bulky Technicolor camera they had to use. It's it's fascinating to watch and think about the mechanics that went into making it. Uh, it's a bit overheated in the way it kind of shows its version of the Leopold and Loeb murder case. But, uh, you know, that was actually, I did see Rope was one of the ones I saw yep. at the Highland Theater. And, uh, you know, I was fascinated by, I didn't even know about this one shot gimmick, you know, where they try to mask the, the cuts with people walking in front of the camera and so on. So I just found it fascinating. But it's, it's I still think that one is second tier, but Jimmy Stewart's pretty great in his righteous indignation. <laughs> and uh, there, there's some fun bits of business with the body in the trunk and when it's gonna get discovered and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's definitely worth seeing. <laughs> Oh, the cameos. The cameos, sure. Yeah. I haven't gone looking, but I wonder if there's a super cut on YouTube or something. Oh, there's got to the be. There's, 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 certainly, there's certainly a list of them Yeah, uh, out yeah. there. And, uh, you know, he's in all the major ones. Um, and I love that in Lifeboat, he's a photograph in a newspaper that yeah, someone's for, reading. Yeah, for, for weight loss. <laughs> yeah. He was actually on a diet at the time. Uh, you know, he, he, had a, he had a thing. Of, he was constantly going on diets and trying to lose weight and getting it back and all that sort of thing. Um, Rope is the tricky one because it's, it's a verbal cameo. They refer to one of his films. In a, what was that film? Blah, blah, blah. And I think they, I think they mean Rebecca. But they, kind of, they don't say the name of the film, but they kind of... Uh, intimate at it or something like that because obviously he couldn't just walk into the apartment um so and that's one i didn't realize for years and years and years but um yeah he's in he's in most of them and it's just it was just his, you know again a way of just saying this is my movie <laughs> get used to it and um you know initially it was just because they couldn't afford enough extras so he had to play a couple of he actually shows up in in the lodger twice in two different roles. One in one of them is backs to the camera, but you can tell it's him and another is in a crowd scene. Hmm. And then uh, it just, uh, but by the time of blackmail, his sort of silent sound film, he's, he's uh, on a subway being harassed by little kids. So it's, it's, you know, clear that he was becoming aware of his own importance to his own movies, I guess, very early on. <laughs> Uh, well, Torn, Torn Curtain and Topaz are definitely Cold War films. Um, you know, in Torn Curtain, uh, I think uh, uh, Paul Newman has to get to the get to the East uh, East Germany to with with uh, withdraw some secrets from a scientist who's either being held prisoner or is being, you know, is, is a fugitive from uh, the Stasi or something like that. So you know, it's very pronounced there and. Uh, uh, that's a film that I enjoyed more than I thought I would. It's not a great film, but, uh, you know, there's an amazing murder sequence, <laughs> which, uh, you know, surprise, surprise. Uh, I, it was the one where Bernard Herrmann did a score for it, but then he and Hitchcock fought. And I don't know if it was that Hitchcock didn't like the music or he just decided to teach Bernard a lesson and, uh, and hire, I think, Alex North, I think, maybe, to do the score. Um, and I think it probably would have been a stronger film for that. But, it, but there's also that, you know, Paul Newman and... Julie Andrews don't have a ton of chemistry as the romantic leads of the film. Um, although the early films are, the early scene together where they're in, in bed is fairly intimate and, and had more chemistry than I was led to believe they did have, but it kind of wears off as the film goes on. But it, 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 does, it is interesting in the way that it portrays those kind of politics uh, in a way that other films were also going for. I don't think it's revolutionary in the, the way that, say, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold 
might be about portraying uh, that period and that place and, and, and that kind of situation. I think it's a, it tries to be glossy and gritty at the same time, and that's probably why it fails. But, is, uh, is but he was a, interested in that, that uh, topic. Is there a theory that uh, some of his pushing the limits of horror movies for the time uh, had anything to do with sort of nuclear fear and, and Red Scare? I mean, I, I don't know if, if I'm grasping here, but do, have, you, could you, have you seen uh, that in his films? Well, it's, it's notorious. Kind of has a bit of that in mm-hmm. it. Uh, that's the most obvious example I can think of. Um, but I, I, you know, just searching my memory banks, I'm not really, I'm not really seeing that. There's a bit of that in North by Northwest, but it's kind of played up. I right. mean, we didn't even use the word MacGuffin at any point to the. And of course, he was. That was his famous contribution uh, to film uh, glossaries. Is the plot device that drives the story yet is utterly meaningless in the case of north by northwest it's that microfilm we've got to get that microfilm and uh you know ultimately it's like who cares what what is the microfilm well who cares mm-hmm. you know and and there's a famous uh, interview where he's explained the whole MacGuffin, um you know what where the name came from and anything it's just a nonsensical thing to keep the story moving and it, it's not in every it's the uranium in in notorious Notorious is, is another example. You know, it's just a, a plot device. Um, and, uh, you know, microfilm or military secrets or whatever. Um, but uh, something that everybody wants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's just the, the what's it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for sticking around and listening to us ramble on. That's great. Yay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lens Me Your Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at VSoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 